All right, it's question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, anywhere on my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it in the comments and I will gather them all up and I will answer them here. Apologize, we tried to shoot outside and then we just got chased away by all kinds of construction noises and airplanes and lawnmowers and dogs. So we're inside the house and clearly we need a little more padding. We need to cover all the walls with soundproofing. So, all right, let's get on with the questions. Trump Kelly. Hey Fraser, I just bought a new telescope, Celestron Nexstar 130 SLT computerized telescope because of you. So thanks. Also your subtle, if not inadvertent, peer pressure. Also good green screen. Our green screen technology failed us this week, that's for sure. Um, the Celestron 130 SLT, I haven't used that specific telescope, but I, you know, I do like pretty much anything produced by Celestron. A lot of the major manufacturers, they sort of make pretty good mounts, pretty good telescopes with good optics, you know, a lot better than that, those sort of department store telescopes. So you can't go wrong with sort of that level of a telescope. And they're not very expensive, just a couple of hundred dollars usually. And the key is that it's got a computerized mount, which is the thing that I like. I'm very lazy. I want to let robots do my, my telescoping. And, uh, and that's what's the key with like one of those go-to telescopes. And then after that, you just get bigger and bigger telescopes. Um, now, I hope it wasn't my peer pressure because my peer pressure should be that you got a pair of binoculars first. So I hope you follow that peer pressure first. And so for anybody who wants to think, you know, wants to go out and start getting some gear to view the night sky, start with a pair of binoculars. Even just like the regular binoculars that you get, like the eight power, eight times 35 are are great. And then if you're still enjoying yourself, you can get bigger telescopes, say 15 by 75 and eventually 25 by 100s, although they get pretty heavy. So, uh, but I would love to hear what kinds of telescopes people are using. Uh, you know, are they, are you using them? Are they collecting dust? Uh, let me know in the comments. Nick Selka, please explain to me the countless unidentified crafts caught by cameras on the space station. Explain to me all of the Mars anomalies. If you don't think we're being contacted, then you're either ignorant or stupid. Probably the latter. Wait a second, let me just think that through. Ignorant or stupid, probably the... That means I'm stupid. <sighs> Next question. <laughs> well played. Kim Land. Dumb question. But if we can zoom into all these light years away, then how come we can't zoom into planets other than it seems Mars and the moon right up to their ground? Shouldn't we be able to zoom into even craters? It's important to understand the difference between objects like the moon, Mars, Kuiper belt objects, things like that, and stars and galaxies. Stars and galaxies are giving off radiation. They are producing light and that light is crossing vast distances while places like the moon or Mars are using reflected light, which is a lot less bright. And let me give you an example, right? Imagine you're in this gigantic gymnasium and it's completely dark and you've got even just a single LED light or like a cell phone light. You can totally see it, even though you could be hundreds of meters away from, from where the light source is. And that's, you know, we're seeing that bright light while say if there was something that was even close to that light in this big dark gymnasium you might not even be able to see it from across the way so that's the difference between the light that's being give, given off by these galaxies and things that's reflected but the other thing is just the resolution how 
how fine of features can you resolve on some distant object? And so, for example, a galaxy is 120, say Milky Way is 120,000 light years across. It's an enormous structure. Like it's just your mind baffles trying to think of how big these things are compared to something like the moon or Mars. You know, they're relatively small compared to a galaxy. Now they're closer, but still a telescope can only resolve features to a certain size. And in fact, we even the Hubble Space Telescope isn't powerful enough to resolve features on the surface of say the moon down to the size of like the lunar landers and things like that. You need to go close. But when we send really powerful spacecraft to these other worlds, like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's at the Moon, or the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that's at Mars, they then have the resolution to see objects that are very small. The Mars spacecraft can see the rovers moving around on the surface of Mars. The Moon spacecraft can see Moon landers on the surface of the Moon. So you just have to bring that telescope a lot closer. As we build bigger and bigger telescopes, we'll be able to see finer and finer resolution on these objects that are farther and farther away. So bigger telescopes, better views of the cosmos. Rick Martinez. I haven't seen a video in months since YouTube mysteriously unsubscribed me. I had to go and manually find you, miss the videos. Okay, that's about the most terrifying thing that I think a YouTuber can hear is that people are being unsubscribed from their YouTube channels. And I've heard this is happening and this is a thing. So I would love to know if this has happened to other people, uh, especially you know to my channel, but just to other channels in general. And if you know any reason why this is happening. Uh, you can always turn on the notification bell to get notified when I've released a new video, although apparently, you know, who knows if that works. Uh, the other thing is that I post links to all of the videos in my podcast feeds for both video and audio, and then I also post links to them in the newsletter feed, which I mention at the end of most videos. And if you want to subscribe to that, go to universetoday.com newsletter, and then you'll get sort of another way of finding out that the new videos that we've released. So uh, that sucks, and I'm really sorry, and I am scared that this is happening. So uh, thanks for letting me know. Randy Lickness. Here's a question to ponder. Do most landers go into orbit before landing? Mars, Titan, Venus, Apollo, missions to the moon? It depends on the target, right? It depends on whether the place that the lander or spacecraft is going has any kind of atmosphere. So if it has an atmosphere like the Earth or Mars or Titan or Venus, then you can, you can make a direct trajectory. You can just fly straight at the planet. When you hit the atmosphere, you deploy some kind of heat shield, slow yourself down, deploy parachutes, and then land on the surface. Mars has a very thin atmosphere, so it's sort of the toughest place to do this. And so for Mars, they have to use other things like the sky crane or the big bouncy ball that Spirit and Opportunity used. Now, if you want to go to a world like the Moon or Mercury or something like that, then you have to first go into an orbit around that world. And then you need to cancel out your orbital velocity, and then that will allow you to land on the surface. And then if you want to take off again, you have to take off from the world, get up to orbital velocity, and then make a, uh, you know, a flight back to, say, Earth or wherever else that you're going. So it's actually sort of, you know, you get a bit of a cost savings when you're trying to land on a world with an atmosphere. That atmosphere is, is lets your spacecraft put on the brakes. Well, if you're going to try and land on a place that doesn't have any air, then you have to pay the full price to cancel out all of the velocity that you've got. 
Christophorus Rahan. How does the laser keep continuously shooting at the space sail if Earth is orbiting around? So this is in relation to this idea of the breakthrough Starshot mission, where you've got these small solar sail powered little satellites that you hit the solar sail with a really powerful laser and that accelerates the spacecraft theoretically to 10% the speed of light. Although we'll see sort of what actually happens. The laser and all of the probes that it's going to be launching will be in the same orbit to begin with before the laser starts to accelerate them off to their various targets. Now, this actual sort of transfer of momentum from the laser happens very quickly. So you've got this really powerful laser, it charges itself up, the spacecrafts are sort of hovering nearby, um, and then the, the laser will turn to one of the spacecraft and hit it with the laser, and it's essentially going to hit it with as much laser power to transfer velocity to the spacecraft without vaporizing it. And it will gain a tremendous amount of speed very quickly. The laser will continue to aim at the spacecraft while it's accelerating away. And once it's too far away, then the laser won't be able to provide any power. And now the, the, the Starshot spacecraft is, is on its way. And then the laser points at a new one, accelerates that one, and it's on its way. And then it just keeps doing that. And you send probe after probe after probe off to this other world. So the lasers have to be able to point themselves really perfectly at the spacecraft. And they're going to be fairly small targets. And as the laser, as the spacecraft gets farther and farther away from the laser, then the amount of acceleration that it's going to receive is going to go down until it's essentially not receiving any more boost. So that's how it's going to work is the, the spacecraft has to turn, aim, fire, and track the target as it's moving away. Star butterfly. So basically, it doesn't matter to us in the slightest if the universe is finite or infinite, since what we can potentially interact with is finite in either case. And this is, of course, based on the video that we just did about cosmological horizons. And that's exactly right, that even if the universe is infinite, the volume of space that we will ever be able to reach, unless we can go faster than the speed of light, is going to be a finite amount. So even if the universe is infinite, it doesn't matter because the amount that we can reach is finite. So it's more just like fulfilling our curiosity to know if the universe is infinite or finite. Just understand the, the, you know, what is the geometry of the universe and what is its ultimate future. But the reality is this kind of sad idea that we're stuck in this ever-shrinking bubble of usable space as time goes on. And eventually, we will just be trapped in just the local group and there will be nothing else that we can reach. Armageddon X. I always get a bit annoyed when people say, we'll never be able to. I don't think it's certain what is the eventual limit of human life technological development. Absolutely. We don't know what the future holds, what future technology, what laws of physics we're going to discover, what laws of physics we're going to overturn. We have no idea. But at the same time, that means, you know, if we have no idea, then we have no idea what the future holds. And all we can do is make predictions for the future based on the laws of physics as we understand them today. And absolutely, if somebody comes up with some method of traveling faster than the speed of light, then our you know, feeling trapped inside the Hubble volume goes away. We can go anywhere we want in the universe. If uh, we understand how to make anti-gravity, then the need to make rotating spaceships goes away, etc., etc., etc. 
there's this famous quote, and I'm, I'm sure I'm mangling it, but, but essentially when anyone tells you that something might be possible, then it probably is. And if someone ever tells you that something is completely impossible, then it certainly isn't. So, uh, but who knows, right? Who knows which laws of physics are gonna be understood better further down the road? Who knows which ones are gonna hold fast forever? The more we understand about the universe, the more we're gonna be able to understand what the future constraints are. So that's just sort of how physics works and our ability to try and predict things. Anonymous Freak. Related to a previous video talking about how communities could be multi-system but not reasonably multi-galaxy, this idea of horizons even has a social horizon aspect. Think about it if the United States manages to colonize the planet around Proxima Centauri, it's 4.2 light years away. I hope it's a world that colonizes Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri. Actually, you don't want to go to Proxima Centauri, that place sucks. Uh, horrible flares come off the star and would just irradiate you. But I think your point is great, right? That assuming the laws of physics hold as we understand them, um, the speed that we can communicate is going to be the speed of light. It's gonna be, it's gonna take us 4.2 years to send messages to Alpha Centauri and 4.2 years for them to send signals back. Imagine trying to have elections with that kind of a delay. There's only so much space empire that you can ever possibly have when anywhere that you go takes that long. And I think there was, there was examples of that sort of back, say in the 1600s, 1500s, when you had Europe and then you had the colonies where if you wanted to send a message to someone in America um, or Canada, you would have to take months to make the journey from, from Europe to the New World. It took a long time. And so the kinds of laws, the kinds of restrictions, the kinds of taxation that you could do was a lot less than when later on when they had telegraphs and telephones and internet and satellites and things like that. So I think we're gonna have that same problem, except at this point, it's the laws of physics that are defining how fast you can communicate. And so I can imagine some future civilization exists in this strange state where discoveries are made and they propagate out from one place to the other places. Uh, messages take a long time. You can imagine a galactic civilization that has say hundreds or thousands of light years across trying to just come to some kind of agreement on laws or taxes or things like that. It's, it kind of blows the mind. And I don't even think it's possible, right? That really every separate star system is gonna end up being its own individual place run by its own separate rules and will probably never send more than, you know, uploads of the new discoveries that they've made to the other worlds. It's a pretty mind-bending concept to think about. Lloyd Agola. I don't understand why events that will happen billions of years after I'm long dead still make me feel sad. You are not the only one. This is one of the things that I find really fascinating about these conversations, where we feel this sense, this existential sadness. When we think about, say for example, the sun is going to die in seven and a half billion years, puff up as a red giant, destroy some of the inner planets, bake the earth, and then collapse down as a white dwarf. And that just like it's seven and a half billion years, that's longer than the earth has been here so far. That, that feels sad, right? And, and when I tell you that actually it's not gonna take seven and a half billion years, it's actually gonna only take 
a billion years before the sun is heated up to the point that all life on Earth is destroyed. Well, a billion years, you know, that's not as long as life has been around. The reality is that the large life forms, like us, are at the halfway point of our existence on this planet. A billion years ago, the first large life forms formed, or half a billion years, and you know, multicellular animals, things like that, and they're only going to be around for another half billion years before the Earth cooks and they're and they're gone. But even like the thinking that you know, when we think about the far, far future when the stars and galaxies fall over the cosmological horizon and we'll never know that they're there, when you know trillions of years when the last red dwarf stars finally fade away and everything starts to turn into these cooling down dwarf stars across the universe when the when the black holes evaporate over a google years it just can't help but make you feel sad and yet we aren't really careful about our diets and making sure that we exercise and spending time with our friends and family and the ones that we love so when I think about those vast time frames, I try to use that as a way to remind myself to also think about the, the now and the moment and to, and to be grateful for uh, this chance at life that we all have. So uh, use that to remind yourself when you feel that sadness about things are going to happen half a billion years from now, you know, call your mom, tell your lover. Thanks. Tara Q1. Dr. Sutter mentioned that at some point only our local group will be visible to the expansion of the universe. Does our local group include the Lanakea supercluster and the Great Attractor? Only parts of it. So the Lanakea supercluster has sort of been described as the largest object in the universe that we, in our nearby universe, it's this enormous structure containing thousands of galaxies and galaxy superclusters. It's a really big structure. But the reality is, is that you know, the universe is expanding and dark energy is actually going to be the dominant feature in the gaps between some of these areas. So the Lanakea supercluster is not actually a thing because it's not being held together by its mutual gravity. Now, the local group is a thing, right? Eventually, a long, long time, a lot of the galaxies in our local group are going to crash together, they're going to turn into big elliptical galaxies, and they're going to be held together by their mutual gravity. But some of these other more distant galaxies, the dark energy is too strong. They're going to be accelerated away from us at eventually faster than the speed of light, and they will never come together. So there's sort of this, this sweet spot in between the local group and some of the larger supercluster that we're embedded in, where parts of it are eventually going to all come together in its mutual gravity, and parts of it are just going to be gone forever. Terex819, would we be able to reach other galaxies, if wormholes or Alcubierre drives become reality, would our event horizon expand? Absolutely. Uh, if we invent technologies that allow us to move faster than the speed of light, then this concept of an event horizon that surrounds us will disappear. And actually, sort of the math for an Alcubierre drive is very different from the kind of math that you would sort of come to expect with, say, Star Trek and, and Star Wars and things like that, where you know you turn on your Alcubierre drive thanks to its negative mass, uh, and you may go billions of light years, trillions in a fraction of a second. So you really could go almost anywhere in the observable universe in a heartbeat which is different than the sort of the naval concept that we sort of imagine spaceships going because really 
Star Wars and Star Trek and things like that are just, you know, space battle or, or, or ocean battles in space. But these, the real science behind the Alcubierre drive and wormholes is that it's in, almost instantaneous to go these vast distances. But the problem is, right now, according to the laws of physics as we currently understand them, they require leaps in physics that may probably not be possible. And it may very well be that we, those don't pan out, but we discover something else that does pan out. So there's hope. Who knows? Who knows what the future is going to hold? Right now, we can, we're at rockets that take off and they land again, which is amazing. And uh, it's a golden age of rocketry. So enjoy this. All right. Uh, that's it. Thanks for everyone's questions this week. I really appreciate it. I have a lot of fun with these. Uh, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just type it in. I will gather them all up and I'll answer them here. All right. I'll see you next week.